Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The Prison Policy Initiative has released eight important facts about women and incarceration in the U.S. One, the population of women in state prisons has grown at more than twice the rate of the population of men in state prisons. Two, women are disproportionately incarcerated in jails, where more than half of them have not yet been convicted of crime and are still presumed innocent. Three, nearly 80% of women in jails are mothers. Four, 226 women have been exonerated since 1989, making them about 9% of the nearly 3,000 people who have been exonerated in the last three decades. Five, nearly 71% of women exonerees were wrongfully convicted of crimes that never took place at all, but included events that turned out to be accidents, death by suicide, and crimes that were fabricated. Six, about 40% of exonerated women were wrongfully convicted of harming their children or loved ones in their care. Seven, only 11 women have been exonerated with the help of DNA evidence. Last, false or misleading forensic evidence contributed to the wrongful convictions of 84 women who have since been exonerated. The death penalty reached a historic low in 2020 And this February, the Virginia Senate's House of Delegates voted to abolish it, making Virginia the 23rd state and the first Southern state to do so. Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy, has executed more people over the past four centuries than any other. Since 1608, when Jamestown colonists first executed a prisoner, Virginia's government has executed nearly 1,400 people. Virginia's early capital punishment laws enshrined racism White defendants could be executed only for first-degree murder, while enslaved black defendants could be executed for many lesser crimes. The death penalty is a legacy of racial terror lynching. By the 1920s, lynchings were disfavored because of their bad press, and Southern legislators shifted to capital punishment. The court system replaced vigilantism. By 1915, court-ordered executions outpaced lynchings in the former slave states. Two-thirds of those executed in the 1930s were black, and southern states that had more lynchings between the 1880s and 1930s still condemn more people to death today. Senator Mamie Locke reminded the Senate that it is not lost on anyone that those states that had a high number of lynchings correlate with their support of the death penalty. Since 1973, 174 innocent people have been released from death row. I cannot think of anything that is more awful, unspeakable, and wrong for a government to do than to use its power to execute somebody who didn't commit the crime they're accused of, Senator Surovell said as he introduced the bill. The problem with capital punishment is that once it's inflicted, you can't take it back.
prominent political prisoner and former Black Panther Mumia Abu-Jamal reported that he is COVID positive. In what is now Mumia's 40th year in prison, the 66-year-old is in need of urgent hospital care due to extreme symptoms such as shortness of breath and chest pain. Mumia has additionally been suffering with untreated hepatitis C for years, which leaves him susceptible to COVID-19. On February 27th, protesters rallied at the Philadelphia City Hall to demand his immediate release and the release of all inmates over the age of 50. Activist Pam Africa told the Philadelphia Inquirer, quote, his breathing is challenging and he's afraid his lungs will be compromised. While the prison refuses to confirm Mumia's COVID status, he has been in contact with family and friends about his worsening health. Mumia Abu-Jamal's grandson addressed the rally saying, quote, they want to bury my grandfather in the fight for black liberation. They want to bury that. We ain't gonna let them bury that. On our show this week, we're trying something new. From now on, we'll be teaming up with Perilous Chronicle at the beginning of each month to give you headlines tracking disturbances in prisons, jails, and detention centers. Perilous is a project supported by a network of people who seek to gather and track information on prison uprisings, riots, protests, strikes, and other disturbances within public and private jails, prisons, and detention centers in the U.S. and Canada since 2010. In their process, they rely on crowdsourced information in addition to local news outlets and their own reporting. In this segment, we share the events that Perilous tracked for January and February 2021. In the first few days of January 2021, there were hunger strikes reported at four facilities in the U.S. and Canada. At Pine Grove Correctional Center in Saskatchewan, Canada, Saskatoon Provincial Correctional Center, Canada, Kilby Correctional Facility in Alabama, and Sonoma County Jail in California. In total, over 125 prisoners participated in these hunger strikes. On January 5th, two detainees escaped from Okanogan County Jail in Washington. One of the persons who escaped allegedly left a note as the Wenatchee World reported of a probable cause affidavit filed in Douglas County Superior Court that essentially states that he escaped the jail because he was in fear for his life due to COVID-19 and the jail was not doing enough to protect the inmates from it, end quote. As of January 13th, they have both been arrested. On January 6th, there was an uprising at Monroe County Correctional Facility in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. As the Pocono Record reported, a statement released by the warden, Gary Heidel, at roughly 8 p.m. that evening detailed how 13 to 15 prisoners refused orders to return to their cells and, quote, became increasingly hostile toward guards and staff, leading to the use of a pepper ball launcher. Prisoners began barricading doors and, quote, attempted to craft makeshift weapons, end quote, from Brooms and the Corrections Emergency Response Team, CERT, was called. According to the release, a discussion was held between prisoners and the response team that allegedly led to prisoners returning to housing units. On January 9th, there was an attack on guards and an uprising at the Sussex State Prison in Virginia. According to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, at roughly 6 p.m. that evening, a sergeant and a canine officer sustained non-life-threatening stab wounds. Nine prisoners were said to be involved in the attack, 
as well as taking over two dormitories and refusing to return to their cells, lighting fires and breaking sprinkler heads. A strike team was deployed. Also on January 9th, a hunger strike began on Unit 9 at Drumheller Institution in Alberta, Canada, in protest of poor conditions. As the Calgary Herald reported, more than 30 prisoners participated in the hunger strike to draw attention to a lengthy lockdown in the unit due to an outbreak of COVID-19 and the, quote, limited access to phones and showers, lack of adequate food and health supplies, and poor transparency by nurses and guards, end quote. Dalvir Sidhu, a participant in the hunger strike, told the Calgary Herald about the lack of information with regards to when the lockdown will be lifted. They're just keeping us in the dark, said Sydney, telling us we don't know when this is going to be over. People are starting to go crazy. They're just banging on the walls all day. Many involved ended their hunger strike after the institution promised to restore canteen access, but two prisoners continued their protest for another week. On January 10th, six detainees escaped from the men's division inside Merced County Downtown Jail in Merced, California, by using a rope with bedsheets to scale the jail's wall. As of February 8th, four of those who had escaped have been captured, and six relatives and friends of those who escaped have been arrested and charged for helping with the escape. On January 11th, prisoners resisted assault from numerous officers at the Edna Mahan Correctional Facility for Women in Hunterdon County the only women's prison in New Jersey. During a cell extraction on the evening of the 11th, several officers and guards in riot gear beat and attacked prisoners and deployed pepper spray, in which more than six prisoners reported injuries, including a transgender woman who was beaten in handcuffs to a point that she is now bound to a wheelchair. According to the Daily Voice, many prisoners threw urine and other objects at guards during the attack. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that these assaults are just one of many of the abuses that have been documented over the years at the prison. Currently, 29 supervisors and guards at the prison have been suspended and are under criminal investigation since the event. On January 21st, at least 10 people were involved in a 14-day hunger strike at the Minnesota Sex Offenders Program facility in Moose Lake. Those confined at Moose Lake were protesting the conditions of the facility, as well as the constitutionality of the, quote, civil commitment program that allows for the indefinite confinement under the guise of, quote, treatment rather than, quote, punishment. That is, those who have been charged and sentenced with a sexual offense can be released from prison, but then required to go to a treatment facility upon release. The ability of being released from treatment facilities requires a client to be certified as cured, which those protesting at Moose Lake claim is a difficult, if not impossible, pathway to being released, leading to the possibility of indefinite confinement. According to the Star Tribune, the hunger strike ended when state officials agreed to meet with the hunger strikers to address their concerns and complaints. On January 23rd, two prisoners escaped from Arizona State Prison Complex, in which they breached the fence of the prison using tools retrieved from the tool room. According to several news sources, such as the Associated Press, both prisoners had medical conditions and after escaping had attempted to visit pharmacies and drugstores. Both prisoners were captured on January 28th. The escape has renewed the discussion of closing the prison complex. 
An attack on eight guards occurred on January 26th at the Southwest Correctional Center in Missouri. The spokesperson for the Missouri Department of Corrections said that 13 prisoners attacked the guards after returning to their units, but stated the reason for confrontation was unknown. But a Riverfront Times article suggested that the event was due to weeks of staff shortages at the prison that have led prisoners to handle grievances and settle scores themselves, which suggests the tension is between prisoners, a claim that does not explain why there was a confrontation specifically with guards. February 2021. On February 5th, four detainees breached the wall and escaped from the roof at Ross County Jail in Ohio. One escapee was captured during the escape and the other three were detained later that evening. The Chillicothe Gazette reported after the escape that the jail is currently overpopulated and has been under construction for three years, which has led to the doubling up on cells that are meant for only one person. The uprising on February 6th at the St. Louis Justice Center in Missouri has garnered significant attention in the past few weeks, both nationally and internationally. Over 100 detainees took over two units on the complex on the early morning of February 6th for about six hours, setting fires and breaking windows. It was the third uprising since December. After the protests on December 29th, EXPO, or Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing, in St. Louis, released a letter from someone inside the jail who outlined the conditions and demands of the jail, including detailing the retaliation and repression by guards and staff after the event. EXPO stated that the uprising on February 6th occurred due to the direct failure to respond to these demands such as access to blankets and heat in the winter, PPE and COVID-19 testing, recreation. The letter states that these failures inside is genocide and that we don't want to die from COVID-19, especially not at the hands of the staff. On February 7th, an uprising and attack on guards occurred at Inverness County Jail in Portland, Oregon. That evening, detainees took over two dorms for two to three hours in which pieces of furniture were thrown at guards. As KOIN 6 News reported, people with connections to those in custody said the tensions spiked over COVID concerns. Over 100 detainees have contracted COVID-19 in the past two weeks. The sheriff's office deployed tasers and pepper spray, and the correction emergency response team was called in. KOIN 6 News also reported a statement from the president of Multnomah County Corrections Deputy Association, who stated that event was a direct result of the floor being closed at the Justice Center. We have asked repeatedly that they open those floors up to give relief from the problems caused by COVID-19 and broken classification systems. Critical Resistance in Portland reported that the incident started when a man asked for a COVID-19 test from a guard and then was beaten and tased. The group also reported that tear gas was used inside the unit. A detainee from Inverness said of the event that, now they know that if they come in here tasing somebody, they got to tase all of us. Over 30 prisoners in Bordeaux Prison in Montreal participated in a hunger strike on February 15th to protest their extended confinement to their cells due to COVID-19 risks. CTV News reported that prison officials continue to restrict and confine this group of prisoners, even not having tested positive for COVID-19. 
Prisoners indicated that they would continue striking as long as they were kept in confinement. On February 16th, two prisoners escaped from San Joaquin County Honor Farm Facility in California. Both prisoners were captured the following day. According to ABC 10, one of the prisoners was taken to a hospital prior to the San Joaquin County Jail to address injuries sustained during the escape. As of February 18th, two detainees at the Buffalo Federal Detention Center, an ICE facility in New York State, started a hunger strike to protest conditions due to COVID-19 and vaccine distribution. The hunger strike was ongoing as of March 5th, and several other detainees at the facility have participated on and off since December of 2020. The Times Union quoted one of the hunger strikers, Raul, who stated, I am doing this because I suffer depression. I cannot hold on being here longer. I am afraid I will be infected with the virus. Angola Prison Watchdog reported that on February 17th, 15 prisoners at Angola State Prison in Louisiana started a hunger strike to get the attention of the warden and protests being held in administrative segregation months past the date that they were meant to be placed back in the general population. The warden's office claims they are being held in segregation due to overcrowding. On February 24th, two people detained at Henry County Jail in Indiana escaped through an unsecured door while a security check was being conducted, according to the Tribune. As of March 8th, one of those who escaped has yet to be captured. Up next, we hear from Isaiah. He's being held awaiting trial in FDC SeaTac. He spoke to us a while back about the lack of COVID-19 protocols in the facility. As you'll hear, he had his phone privileges revoked for shining a light on their conditions. He talks to us this week about how the COVID-19 protocols have changed since he spoke out and with a new administration coming into office. He also talks about the First Step Act, signed into law by Trump in 2018, which allegedly intends to reorient prisons around rehabilitation rather than punishment. As Isaiah tells us, it's not going that way in his facility, where the only two classes they're offering have no real-world application. Here he is. COVID-19 came, so in our facility, right, COVID-19 came in here, was actually in our unit, there was like two, three hundred cases in here, well, we was on lockdown December 15th, I think December 18th, we was on lockdown for 40 days straight, and so in our unit, there's a hundred people in our unit, there's split tiers, half people had the COVID-19, and the other half didn't, right, so when I did, the first I did the, 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 the test, that took 48 hours, they did the test, and then uh, when people were positive, they moved upstairs, and if people were negative, they moved downstairs. So then they did another test, like two weeks later, I'm negative, so I stayed downstairs. The people who were positive, they moved upstairs, right? And the same, we're all in the same unit. This is a split tier, so you can, it's not that hard. So after uh, two weeks after that, they did one more test, they tried to open up the unit. And Let's call it from a federal prison. And the people who were upstairs were positive, so they moved all the people who were positive downstairs to negative and moved me from negative unit back upstairs to positive. So I got COVID. Four days later in January, I got COVID right at the New Year's. No, right before New Year's, I got COVID. December 25th, 20th, yeah, because I went upstairs in medical isolation for New Year's. So I got COVID December on Christmas. So I tested positive for COVID. So how I got COVID is when I was in a negative cell, I was negative. Then after a week, they moved me up to a positive cell. And the people who were positive, they moved it down to negative cell. They intentionally did it hurt me. The, the, the officers came in and said, we're eventually all going to get it. 
So the only way to reopen the whole facility was to spread it around everybody. So we all got, everybody got COVID from the officers to the inmates. We all got in here. Everybody got COVID. When you get COVID, they put you in a room, a medical isolation. You get zero medical treatment. Even the elder, the Asian guy next to me, 60s, he had cancer. He was up there. Even the people who are 60, 70 here, they give you zero medical treatment. I'm mean, zero. No aspirin, no Tylenol, nothing. So I moved to another unit, medical isolation. They give you no clothes. You stay in the same unit. They bring your food to the unit. You don't get the change. You get out two days of shower for 20 minutes. That's what happened when I had COVID here. That's my 10 days in quarantine. I was by myself with another inmate who got COVID. And that's how they, that's, that's it. No medical. Zero. So in here, yes, yeah, like the first step back. So, you know, Donald Trump signed the law called the first step back in 2018 when he was in president. All right, the first step that law of 2018 is a recidivism law to reduce recidivism rates for incarcerated inmates in, as BLP. It is a law that Donald Trump signed in 2018 that you can get up to two-thirds of credit. All right, with 30 days, you serve 15 days of time credit, which you can get released earlier to reduce recidivism rate. It's a program implemented to um, put schooling programs, uh, counseling, drug abuse, any kind of educational facility, institutions, they can put any kind of classes they get to help inmates get the only problem is that the facilities don't have no curriculum right now currently. So they have no curriculum. They have to January 15, 2022 to uh, have programs implemented to all the BOPs. But even if they don't have it implemented in the BOPs, you can still get the recidivism rate credit for your sentence reduction. So inmates in here who are transfer status, there's inmates in here, I'm in a pretrial detainee, but there's inmates in here who have sentenced to plead uh, in, a, in our unit. I'm in a pretrial who are sitting here and transfer whole status. Transfer whole status means that you cannot get recidivism rate credit or time credit, and you cannot get into the programs to get out early. So you have to sit you do your whole full time, and this is how they get around the law. They like leave you in transfer status instead of transfer to your designated facility so you can get your risk assessment and be implemented to a program to get earned time credit. So that is a loophole that you like, like three of my people in here, my cellmates, he had 60 months on the sentence. He's already done 32 months. He's sentenced. I'm pre-trial, right? My trial's April. He's sentenced. He's in transfer status for three years. He can get out of here by the end of this year if he is transferred to his designated facility to do his recidivism rate to be an assignment to the first step. Based on the law, that is what is required of the BOP. But how they circumvent the law is they leave you in transfer status at any facility and they're not just to your designated And so you have to do your entire sentence. Your entire sentence, your whole your whole time, no good time. My other person, he's been here for 57 months out of 57 months. I mean, there's nobody's getting out based on the law right now. That's what I see is going on. But the, the really, today, since I had an email with you, there's a bulletin where they have two classes now. It just posted on the bulletin. It's an astronomy class and it's a science and STEM and research class. So they just have two classes they posted last week in here where you can sign up and take classes for seven-week course. For two, uh, starting on Tuesday here. So they just now got it after I made an email to you. Because the last time I talked to you, I, my phone privileges were suspended for 90 days. Because I told you about COVID. That was before we actually got COVID, but they suspended my phone privileges for 90 days because I was corresponding with the news member media, which is actually recommended in the in my handbook of the CTAC Federal Trade Center. So I was suspended for 90 days. But now that I got my, after I rescinded to reach them and appealed it, they let me talk long as I don't let nobody else talk on my phone. But that's what's going on. That's how they circumnavigate the first step act law, is by leaving people, inmates, mostly African-Americans, Mexicans, black and brown, most of them in here, in transfer status. 
so you can't get earned income credit to go home at 15 to 30 days. So that you potentially get up to half time off your sentence if you get a risk assessment by a counselor, you get a case manager, you get assigned to a rehabilitation program. There's several programs they have. They have from alcohol to kids to any program that's educational, you can get credit and get home. And that's what they're doing right now with a lot of these pre-trial detainees. These sentence. A lot of sentence people will plead it out and they're just doing their full time here. That's what I witnessed since I've been here. Currently, right now, we I signed up for um, education. It's one class is astronomy, and the others is science, STEM cell research, STEM, science teacher, educational math, it's STEM classes. Those are the two classes right now that you can sign up for in here. I see that federal teachers in it. So right now, we haven't started the program. They just put the bulletin. People are signed up. We have no start date. We have no idea when it's going to start, and that's about it so far. It's in the MA handbook and the rights and responsibilities 54-1. It says you have a right to correspond with members of the news and media to keeping up with bureau facilities. It's recommended. It's one of the rights that inmates have. 90-day suspension from my phone privileges for communicating with your station, your, your outlet. Because what was going on, if I did not communicate, it was all in the dark. And when I coordinated with you, they, they actually started putting the CDC guidelines in. After I had an interview with you, we didn't even, this in, the facility was not doing anything with the CDC guidelines. They were, they finally got the mask, we had to wear masks, they put the stickers in, they actually started taking the CDC guidelines seriously. Let's call it from a federal prison. I had COVID in here when I talked to you, that was before I got COVID. COVID came here in December. They're trying to like actually follow procedure and protocols implemented now, now there's a new Joe Biden's in and his new administration. So they're doing their due diligence to make it look like they're facilitating the first step back law. But so far, nobody has got any credit since I've been here. I've been here for nine months since July 14th. I'm one of the few protesters in here. I'm one of the Black Lives Matter protesters. That's the only reason I'm here. They really keep it internal. So all the grievances, like even my BP nines, my administrative appeals, any any grievances I have with the facility, they do not send it to regional. I haven't got a response back from regional. Even my appeal for my infraction for coordinating with the, uh, the facility, the treatment here with your your media, they um, never gave me a grievance back or returned my appeal. So I had no idea if regional even knows what's going on in the facility or how we're being treated. That's pretty much it. It's like right now what's going on through COVID, everything's under the guise of COVID, every mistreatment, everything. So the world out here has no idea how people in prison, incarcerated everywhere nationwide are being treated during COVID. It's just an excuse. No yard time, no rag cow. Uh, we were on lockdown several times more before COVID was here. We were on lockdown. We were on lockdown for 14 days straight, no commissary, no hot food. They stopped giving us hot food. Yes, COVID-19 is an excuse to mistreat people in uh, yes, during this time, this political time. So in terms of the herd immunity, so what, what happens now? Like, everyone got COVID, so have they opened the facility back up again? What's yes, the they are. So this last week, and they have visits. Now we have visits. You can get outside visits. I have approved visits, so now your family and members can visit you. So they have started doing that again. And we haven't been on lockdown recently at all since after the Joe Biden took office. Have people started getting the vaccine? Yes, the vaccine is in here. You can definitely get the vaccine. They are implementing it. You can get it right now. They have a bulletin board. Vaccine is here. They're encouraging it. They're promoting it. It's on every bulletin. They want you to take the vaccine. They do have it here right now. You can take it as of this interview right now in here. We have the vaccine in here. It's the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer one, the two-shot one. That's what we have in here. When did that happen? A month ago. All right. And here you can take the vaccine a month ago. So you can find out, you can get the vaccine right now, currently. Any inmate can get the vaccine right now. We have it here. I mean, that part is at least hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we did get, so... <laughs> 
do have it here. So, yeah, there's no excuse. And courts are not open. We would like courts open. I have court April 12th. Courts are not open. We've been sitting here for months waiting to get out so we can find our cases. We're Courts are not open. We would like courts to be open. They're supposed to be open April 12th, but so far they keep pushing my court date back. So we have no long courts are going to be open indefinitely or suspendedly so we can get a negotiated release through judicial procedures. So I'm sitting here waiting for trial April to fight for everybody in, during COVID-19, even in there and out there, you know? That's all you got to say, because on the news media, they're not talking about what's happening to inmates, incarcerated individuals across the nation. Thanks to Isaiah and the folks at Perilous for their help with this episode. You can find out more information about the First Step Act on our new, searchable website, kitelineradio.org. This has been KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.